Listener, I was recently talking to my pal, Lewis, and the question arose, if there was a cow named Camel and you ate said cow, could you say to your friends and family that you have in fact eaten Camel? Excellent question, Jack. And welcome back, dear listener, to this, the August episode of the Grace podcast. Now, Jack, we've got a lot to talk about this podcast. What are some things that's going on? Well, earlier this month over at the Epping construction site, we in fact had a ceremony of turning of the sod. Turning of the cod? (laughs) No, no, no. no. (laughs) Not turning of the cod. We're not frying fish. (laughs) This is turning of the sod or turning of the soil. Now, it is a very historic and significant event in the diocese. And it's, in fact, turning of the sod is a ceremony and blessing uh, that occurred over at the construction site over Our Lady Help of Christians for the new building that will be erected there over the coming years. And I'll just read out now a quote from Bishop Anthony Rendezzo. Lavande, Opal Healthcare, Richard Crooks Construction, and the Diocese of Broken Bay have broken ground on a unique partnership that is innovative, creative, and ensures the parish's long-term sustainability and mission. From this building site will rise a new primary school, retirement living apartments, a residential aged care development, and multi-purpose and green spaces. Our Heritage Church will remain the focal point of the precinct. Now that is Communities in Collaboration. Rather a nice quote, Bishop Anthony Randazzo. Can't say I've had the pleasure of meeting him in person, but he sounds like a lovely chap. Moving on, speaking of new starts, such as the construction site over at Epping, also in October coming up. So, yes, a bit of an early notice. I realise that, listener. But we have a new session of Unlocking the Mysteries of the Bible coming to you soon. So keep posted to those news bulletins if you want to get involved with that. Another thing coming in October, I believe on the 16th of October, after the 9.30 Mass at Carlingford, we'll be having a 50th anniversary celebration. So you can expect a giant jumping castle. You can expect the one and only Bishop Anthony Rendazzo, who will be coming along to celebrate that. And there will also be a variety of events uh, to support the various parish youths who will be heading over to Lisbon, Portugal next year to celebrate World Youth Day. Wide variety of events Lots of things to get involved with there. Speaking of anniversaries, our good friend, Father Jim, recently celebrated the 23rd anniversary of his ordination. So if you see him around, please give him a little hearty congratulations for such an achievement. And speaking of anniversaries, just last week, who celebrated their fifth anniversary, was it, Lewis? I think it was, I think it was uh, Deacon Adrian. Similarly to Father Jim, it's his fifth anniversary of his ordination. Hmm. Well, speaking of Deacon Adrian, I do believe we'll be hearing from him right now in the podcast and he'll be telling us a little bit more about his life in the seminary. Now, listener, a couple episodes back, some of you might remember, Lewis and I were talking about the Seminary of the Good Shepherd, which recently celebrated its 25th anniversary. Now, we learned a little bit about the history of the seminary, but I thought it would be nice for us all to learn exactly what happens inside the seminary. And I thought, who better to ask than someone that we know and love and someone that has actually spent time inside the seminary, a Mr. 
Deacon Adrian. <laughs> now, Deacon Adrian, hello. Hello. <laughs> now, when did you enter the seminary? So I actually entered the seminary in 1997, which was 25 years ago. So I was there for the opening. It's actually uh, probably changed a little bit since then. In fact, I can say for sure it's changed a little bit since then. So my memories, they're historical memories of, um, of how it was at the opening. Okay. So, and how many years were you there for exactly? I was there for three years. Three years. So do you look back on those three years fondly? I would say those were three of the most challenging and fulfilling years of my life. I actually loved my time in the seminary. Um, the seminary is all about developing the whole person. Uh, I had a li listen to your podcast and they talked about there was the academic side of it, the spiritual side, the pastoral side and the human side of it all. And uh, I was surrounded by a community of men who were all just so dedicated to their faith, who really wanted to serve God and um, serve the faithful as well. So it was a it was an amazing experience. We had some great staff there on, on board at the seminary, as well as uh, over at the Catholic Institute of Sydney, which is where we did our academic studies. So you were talking about the four pillars, and I'm just curious as to what activities did you do to strengthen those four pillars? Well, prayer obviously was at the heart of our life in the seminary. We'd start each day with morning prayer, which would go for about half an hour, 20 minutes, half an hour. We'd also have evening prayer, similar. And then before we went to bed, before we turned in, we'd have night prayer. So those were three parts of the liturgy of the hours, which priests and deacons promised to pray faithfully as part of their ordination. As well as that, we celebrated Mass every day. And then we were also expected to have at least a couple of hours. They encouraged three hours of personal prayer a day as well. So serious prayer time in the seminary. And it was beautiful. The chapel was there. Um, they'd often have exposition of the Blessed Sacrament. They'd have the Eucharist out. Uh, and we'd just, you know, sit in the presence of, um, of Jesus and just, just sit quietly, just be open, whatever came up in our prayer, you know, pray however we, we felt like it. But so, so the spirituality, that was a big part of it. The pastoral formation, uh, we were all assigned to a parish. So you've had um, seminarian Hien assigned to this parish recently. One weekend we'd be in the seminary, the next weekend we'd be out in the parish and we'd just take uh, full you know, uh, involvement in the parish life. So getting involved with the liturgies and the parish groups and all that kind of thing. So that's, I suppose, just getting to know the people and helping to build the community. As well as that, we take on special ministries. So I took on catechetics, like teaching um, scripture in a state high school. Uh, and I hadn't had any teaching experience at that stage. So that was a whole new uh, experience. I'd done lots of youth ministry, but that's very different from walking into a, a state high school classroom and, and saying, hey guys, I'm here to tell you about Jesus. So very, very um, challenging experience. Um, other things, I spent a year taking, uh, visiting people in the hospital, taking communion to the sick in the hospital. And once again, just to walk up to a complete stranger and say, hi, I'm from the local church and um, I've got communion for you. And would you like a bit of time? Would you like to chat? Would you like to pray? That was, um, that was, that was, that was, that was a great experience for me. Um, so a whole range of things like that, you know, um, there's a whole variety of things that um, people could do as part of the pastoral experience. The academic that was um, doing our degrees at the Catholic Institute of Sydney um, had some great lecturers, some phenomenal lectures. I, I, I just loved my time there. Just the, the discussions in class and the debate and, and all that really pushed me. It really helped me grow, I suppose, in my own understanding of my faith, that, that whole idea that theology is faith-seeking understanding. So fantastic time there. Um, and then the human formation, that was really about developing spiritually as well as, I suppose, psychologically uh, as a kind of centred human being, maybe you might say. So... Um, you know, we would see, uh, or we'd have these pastoral reflection groups 
so this is a bit of a mix, where we talk about our experiences out in parishes, out the challenges that we'd faced, you know, some of the mistakes we made, you know, and just through discussion and sharing with others, we'd sort of get that sense of, you know, how am I growing as a person? Where have I done wrong? Where can I improve? Where have I done well? You know, um, things like that. Um, during times we'd also, well, I had what we called a companion, so a psychologist who was on staff at that stage, and I'd meet up with, um, with my companion once a fortnight and just talk about how life was going. So uh, it wasn't straight counselling, you know, I wasn't there for a particular problem, but it was there just to help me integrate, you know, the issues and the questions that I had in my life, yeah, just to, to think through them and um, with that supportive person to help me just grow personally. Now that we have a general overview as to what your three years were like, I was curious, what is the daily routine of a seminarian? Well, when I was there, we'd start the day together as a community with morning prayer. So some people are early risers. They might have been up for a couple of hours before that. Um, I'd often be up just before, you know, quick shower and then head over to morning prayer, uh, which was at seven o'clock. After morning prayer, we'd often celebrate Mass either in the morning or some, some days we'd celebrate Mass in the evening. Uh, following that, we'd have breakfast together as a community. Um, you know, it was just kind of help yourself. The kitchen was all there and we'd sort of do our own thing for breakfast. But we, we'd, we'd sit together and, um, and eat. After breakfast, we generally had classes or sometimes we might have had pastoral work, so sort of heading out to um, a parish or, you know, a school or wherever we were going to, to help out. But generally it would be classes. We'd be over to the walk over to the Catholic Institute of Sydney where we'd have lectures uh, we'd come back to the seminary and have lunch together as a community. And then um, once again in the afternoon, it was either classes or pastoral work or study or whatever it was that we were up to. We'd round off the day with evening prayer at oh, six o'clock, followed by dinner. And then after dinner, look, there was a bit of downtime. Once again, if we were doing study or, or whatever the case may be. Uh, and we ended the, the day gathering once again in the chapel for night prayer, which was beautiful. We'd have the lights down and the candles and... Um, you know, it was, I suppose, yeah, there was an atmospheric thing about night prayer. I, I have this great fondness of night prayer and we'd always finish night prayer with a hymn to Mary. It was just a beautiful way of ending the day. In theory, after that, you all kind of just went to bed. But, you know, if you're social, people just, you know, hang out and have a coffee and, and chat for a bit more. But, yeah, it was um, it was a very structured life, but it was a beautiful life as well. And, and as, I, as I said, it's the people around you that make all the difference and being you know, being with people who, who share your passion for, for God, who share your deep faith and uh, who want to share that faith with others. It was just a, a great, uh, great time and a place in my life. Now, I'm curious. Uh, now, I'm not insinuating that uh, academics isn't fun, uh, nor that praying isn't fun, but I'm curious as to what, what you do for fun in the seminary. You know, we just laughed a lot. We, we laughed a lot in the seminary. I just remember just at lunchtime, we'd be just telling stories and cracking jokes. Like, I, I can't remember lunchtime. Actually, I can remember a lunchtime when we didn't laugh. I'll tell you about that in a minute. But yeah, we'd just be sitting around, you know, just, just swapping stories and telling jokes. I, I, I just had some great, great belly laughs. It was... um. As I said, it was the people we were with. We, we had these, yeah, great, great people. Look, we'd have little celebrations. Every now and then we'd have a barbecue kind of thing. You know, they put on a few drinks and, um, and that. And that was fun and relaxing. Um, you know, I remember once it was summer and we'd sort of gotten our exams behind us and we said, oh, let's, let's all head out to the Blue Mountains. We all went swimming in, I think it was Jelly Bean Pool or something like that, or a bunch of us, you know, a couple of carloads went out. And it was just, um, you know, just time together. 
for me, I'm, I'm musical. Like we had a choir and we had musicians there and all that. Like, you know, I, I love the music side of things there as well as part of the liturgy. Yeah, every now and then we'd have a special event kind of thing and then we'd just be sitting around afterwards and a couple of us might pull out a guitar or something, have a bit of a, you know, just not a religious, you know, sing-along or anything, but just a bit of fun music kind of thing. So, yeah. Yeah, I hope it doesn't sound boring like that, 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 that routine. Like I guess it's what fits in around that routine. You've got that structure, but um, the structure is just like a basic structure and then you've got all the people and all the great personalities around that. So, And we had some great personalities. We had some big personalities in there. And just, look, it was also interesting because there were a lot of introverts who, who were in the seminary um, who obviously, you know, in a very pastoral role, introverts would struggle. But then we had the extroverts and, you know, just life of the party type people and you just think oh whatever parish gets them they'll just be laughing because they they just draw people in and uh, it was fantastic yeah you mentioned earlier about there was one time at lunch that you didn't laugh at all yeah actually it went for a season to be a bit more precise so i had this great idea like i've been reading these old books about you know life in monasteries back in you know medieval times and and during lent they would um, they would have readings of the lives of martyrs. And so I suggested this to my spiritual director, saying, hey, why don't we do something different for Lent? Why don't we have these, like, holy readings, you know, during lunchtime, um, you know? And as I said, lunchtime was normally very social, but no, he thought this was a good idea. And so he basically found all these readings of modern martyrs, people who died in these horrific ways. And um, I remember, like, at the start of Lent, People, we, we used to be able to bring guests in. And so people brought guests in and all that. There were these guests kind of coming in to, to share lunch in the seminary and everything. And then the spiritual director said, okay, and now we're going to hear the, the lives of these martyrs. And I just remember everybody's faces just as, you know, these gruesome stories. We're trying to like, we couldn't speak. And we're sitting there trying to, you know, cut our, our, our food and, and eat our food. And we're hearing these gruesome stories about these, you know, missionaries being like, um, killed, murdered, tortured, you know, raped and all that, you know, um, you know, all over the world in South America or Africa and all that. And just, uh, it was, yeah, it was pretty glum. It was pretty, pretty miserable. That was my fault. I, I, I own up to that one, guys. That was my bad. I'm sorry about that. But that isn't uh, truly reflective of your entire time at the seminary. No. It? So this was a one-off. I, I reckon um, that was the only Lent we ever did that. Um, and in fact, I think it was might have only been Fridays of Lent now I think about it. But um, no, it never happened again after that, as, as far as I'm aware anyway. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, uh, Deacon Adrian, for telling us a bit more about the life inside the seminary of the Good Shepherd. And who knows, perhaps there's a young soul out there uh, who's now deeply considering uh, the seminary in life. Hello again, listener. Welcome back. Um, I'm sitting here with special, special somebody. Should I, should I introduce who you are? <laughs> I, I think um, everyone would know me. I'm a local celebrity. Some that is might say. true. That um, is true. Maybe we should just go straight into it then. Yeah. Nah, joke. <laughs> listener, this is <laughs> listener. This is Phil Philip Vasalo, um, one of our mates from Antioch. Um, you may have heard his name before because he recently hosted a parish environmental forum. Um, I think the first ever parish environmental forum, if I'm correct. Yeah, no, obviously first in history and um, best in class. Um, no, but <laughs> it was it was really great to have the parish support behind it. Father Jim, um, Gavin helped me organize it. Um, turned out a pretty good event, a good turn up, 20, 20 people or so, and got to talk yeah. about a lot of different issues and have a couple of speakers along. Um, awesome. Yeah. Explain this to me. So this, there's the social justice group yes. slash team of the parish, yes. which is like a new setup thing. Yes, yes. And the environmental initiative. 
mm-hmm. is like a subset of that? Yeah, that's correct. So how it basically works is that there's three sections. Uh, the first one um, was the refugee conference. We focused uh-huh. on them for a while um, and brought in two speakers um, that had real life experience and were able to sort of give us a deeper sense of empathy mm-hmm. about it all. Then we moved on to the second one, which was the the environmental forum. And yeah. then the next one will be on like women. Um, oh. I think women and children, but we're still like nice. sort of figuring out the details and like, uh, like say domestic violence and some of those like more serious mm. situations. Um, but yeah, now that we've done the environmental section um, and got in the consultation, we got people to hear about a few different issues. Like we had Mary Oban for Mary the Oban. Bush Care. Um, so she does a lot of local work in the area. Um, mm-hmm. And then like Emma Heidi, she's a local counselor um, and she was able to talk about some of the smaller things she does, um, like did a couple of years ago, like Bag Free Beecroft. We also had um, Arnie's Recon, uh, Lisa from Arnie's Recon. And uh, we also had the e-waste recycling set up outside. So people were able to bring that along because obviously you can't chuck it in a normal bin. Um, But, uh, and yeah, then we had Sue Martin from Catholic Earth Care. Um, But like just having that combination of speakers and then like being able to discuss it all at the end and find out priorities going forward. um, Uh That was, that was really valuable. Sounds like you talked like about a lot of things. Yeah. In the forum. Um, Because you had like discussions, right? Um, yeah, so we had basically like an introduction and then we had the four speakers who maybe had like 10 to 15 minutes each and then the small do- group discussions at the end. So there, there was a lot. It can be overwhelming if you try and do everything at once. Yeah. But that's why one of the most important things out of the small group discussions was finding out what the people of the parish wanted. One of the biggest um, things that came out of it was finding out that um, solar is something, or at least renewable energy, getting it from the grid, procuring it, uh, is something that people really value. We got every single small group that we had in the discussion brought it up. And then there are a bunch of other um, things that they um, talked about too, but I'll focus on that one a bit, solar, um, because a couple of years ago when I was working um, and I still work in the same job, it's aged care. Um, uh-huh. But um, I was actually able to help uh, with a little project where we got solar and batteries um, installed um, in 2020. And that's helped uh, my workplace ever since be carbon neutral or even negative because every quarter he gets a, a check from AGL. Uh-huh. Um, because he produces more energy than he uses. So, wow. and that's sent back to the grid and then other people are, are able to benefit from that. Yeah. Um, and that, that was a really exciting small project, but, uh, with the, with the church, it uses up a lot more energy, our parish. When we look at something like the environment, it can feel like there are these massive targets and it can feel very distant. It can feel something that's not personal at all. But the most important thing is finding out things that are realistic. So having that community consultation to find out, oh, this is something that people care about. This is something that we can do better together as a parish and then expand from there and do our small part to help. You were talking about like, was it Arnie's Recon? That we're yeah. talking about recycling. Batteries. Yeah, they, they do e-waste recycling. So you can't put that in your normal yellow bin. I can't go and throw my MacBook in the yellow bin because otherwise that's got like lithium ion batteries that could cause a fire if not, um, if crushed up in a garbage truck or something. Or they can't be properly like recycled and reclaimed all the precious metals. And uh, actually for some of the locals out there, we've got a fantastic e-waste center uh, at Hornsby Council um, in Thornley. And 
on top of being a fantastic facility, like recycling wise, uh-huh. it's also got some beautiful murals um, painted on the outside by local artists or really? uh, emerging artists. I'd go there just for looking at that. <laughs> But otherwise, you can take stuff like computers, you can take batteries, you can take cardboards, you can take, um, you know, those like white boxes you get like food in to keep them cold, poly, polystyrene poly, boxes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you can take everything there. Um, and that that's incredibly positive. As we close. Yeah. Um, as we say bye to the listener. <laughs> um, what would you say the top three things we as individuals can do? Top three difference? things as individuals? Mm. Heating and cooling makes up some of the greatest energy, um, what's it called, or greatest amount of energy used in most households. So by doing things exactly like what we said before, like setting a max of, say, 21 or 22 degrees. Um, also, if you use electricity over gas, if you can remove gas entirely as an individual, that's fantastic um, because um, that will never be clean, whereas electricity eventually can be. Um, so that's the second thing that I think you can do. And the third thing, like something that I've tried to be a little bit more conscious of is say like when you get lunches, instead of going out and like getting the takeaway every single day, when you go to work in a plastic container, say you can just bring your own lunch or you can ask them if they can put it in like say cardboard or something that isn't, um, something that'll be used once and thrown away. If business is still doing that, you can just say, oh, um, I noticed the business across the street. They are using wooden cutlery now. What are, what are you going to be doing? And if you bring up that sort of awareness or if you talk to other yeah. people, people, your friends, your neighbors, um, it can make people question things and yeah. think about things that have just stayed the same forever. And um, that can be the start to a snowballing amount of change. And that's yeah. pretty awesome. I like that. I like that. So there you go. Listen, there's three ways to make a big impact well look philip it's been a pleasure as always to, to chat with you i feel like there's so much there that we <laughs> yeah. haven't unpacked yet and like yeah. we could have talked for ages more um, for sure <laughs> we'll have to like talk again no there was just so much that i wanted to say <laughs> but um i'm sure we can do more sessions or talk about <laughs> it more in future next time i think our our roadcaster pro here will be powered by solar <laughs> when there's a will there's a way <laughs> <laughs> all righty well, good to speak to you phil awesome see you around See you, Lewis. Pleasure speaking. Hello, listener. It's Jack here. Some of you may have seen me around recently in a sling. I did, in fact, break my collarbone, and I thought I would clear the air and explain exactly how it happened. So, I was recently finding out a pack of Yuzuri brown bears off my family's property in Beecroft, and you know how it goes. Made some loud noises, traded a few blows with the alpha male, stood up tall. Thankfully, the bears were so frightened by my six foot, seven inches figure that they just scattered. But as I was walking back inside the house, one of the filthy bears threw a rock at me. But as we all know, bears have famously terrible aim and it missed me. But it did hit a brick on the roof, which then became dislodged and fell on my shoulder and broke my collarbone. And that's how it happened. Now, I had to have surgery for said collarbone. I had a plate and 11 screws put in, and during the procedure, I was put under general anesthetic. And this got me thinking about unconsciousness and sleep and the different ways that these states can be inflicted. So I've done a little bit of research, and I'm back to share my findings with you. So some states of unconsciousness include those obtained while sleeping, 
under anesthetic and comatose. So in sleep, there are four stages which repeat several times. The first stage is the transition period in which we start sleeping. During the second stage, our muscles relax, our blood pressure drops, and our sleep deepens. The third stage is when our body temperature drops and heart rate slows. And the final fourth stage is called REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, because that's exactly what happens. Our eyes dart around rapidly, we start dreaming, our body becomes relaxed and immobilized, and our brain is incredibly active. Sleep is very unique, and there is still much that we do not know. Now, when it comes to anesthesia, we can receive different drugs, which lead to us being placed in a state which can be identified on the continuous spectrum of sedation. The first level of sedation is called anxiolysis. Whilst in this state, patients can respond normally to verbal commands, though cognitive function and physical coordination may be impaired. We would be placed into this state for minor painless procedures or as a pre-medication before anesthesia. The second state is called moderate sedation and responses to verbal commands are slightly subdued and might need to be accompanied by a light touch. We would be placed in this state for a procedure such as a colonoscopy. The third state, deep sedation, is a state of depressed consciousness. Patients cannot be easily aroused and might require assistance in maintaining a clear airway. We would be placed in this state for a procedure such as a gastroscopy, which is unpleasant but generally painless. The final state is general anesthesia. In this state, the patient loses consciousness and is unable to be aroused. Would be placed in this state for a procedure such as open surgery, which is quite invasive and usually quite painful. When being sedated, we travel through the different states of sedation, both as we lose and gain our full state of consciousness. But what determines how sedated we are? Now, our brain contains 100 billion neurons that communicate to one another via little chemical messages called amino acids. Sedation involves drugs that alter the rate at which these little amino acids are sent between neurons. One sort of drug suppresses the amino acid glutamate, which tells neurons to wake up. Laughing gas is a common example of this sort of drug. Another sort of drug encourages the amino acid GABA, which tells neurons to be quiet. Anesthetists often use a combination of both drugs. It's a classic pincer attack. If you want to put someone to sleep, you would take away their coffee and read them a bedtime story. So, listeners... The drugs we receive to sedate us encourage our neurons to sleep and or discourage our neurons to be awake. The extent to which this occurs is what determines how sedated we become. If you have any further questions on anesthesia or consciousness, I strongly encourage you to strike up a conversation with Dr. Jonathan DeLima, who so kindly helped me write up this little bit on anesthetic. Now, anesthetic is one way to put neurons to sleep, but most of the time, in uncontrolled situations, our neurons are put to sleep for another reason. They don't have energy. The brain doesn't have a way to store energy like muscles, so the brain must receive a constant supply. The brain converts sugar to energy and needs oxygen to do so, and both sugar and oxygen are carried in the bloodstream. In short, you stop the blood, you stop the brain. There are so many different ways that blood flow to the brain can be impaired. The main big three are brain swelling, constricted blood vessels, and low blood pressure. 
When the brain swells, it blocks off its own blood supply because it's housed in the rigid box, which is your skull. This swelling can be caused by a head injury, blood clot, infection, tumour, or even high altitudes. Blood vessels can be compressed by tumours, blocked by blood clots, or inhibited by plaque. Blood pressure can be lowered by reduced blood volume or expanded blood vessels. Oxygen in the bloodstream can also be reduced if you're at high altitudes, if you're experiencing carbon monoxide poisoning, or if you're suffering from certain lung conditions. Glucose in the bloodstream or lowered blood sugar levels can be caused by an overdose of diabetes medication, excessive alcohol consumption, or starvation. Now, I've only covered the tip of the iceberg, and there's still plenty I haven't mentioned. So I encourage you, listener, to do some research of your own. Having been inspired by my talk with uh, Dr. Jonathan DeLima, I will be talking about consciousness for the next few episodes. And next podcast, we'll be taking a deeper dive into the unknown. Why do we sleep? There are a lot of really powerful people around the world, but few are powerful enough to change the entire way we look at time itself. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a pretty weird thing to talk about in the month of August, but stick with me because it all makes sense. Now, Lewis, you've heard yeah. of the word decade, right? I've heard of the word decade. Good. So, so decade would have 10 years. Yeah. Uh, a bit of a weirder word. Have you heard of the word decimeter? No. Well, a decimeter is one-tenth of a meter. So naturally, like if a decade is 10 years and a decimeter is a tenth of a meter, naturally, what would the 10th month be? Well, December. You would think that. And so did the people making the calendar back in the day. But what actually is the 10th month? Well, it's, ooh, it is October. Which is weird because what's an eight-sided shape? <laughs> an octagon. An octagon. Not the ten-sided shape. I see where you're, so I see where you're going. I Clearly, you're something going. has gone awry here, amiss. Something's up, and so something is up. And so, what's fascinating about the month of August and about the month of July is they are made-up months. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, we had a beautiful system where instead of there being, you know, twelve months like we have now, there were only ten. The month system was made up essentially by a guy you may have heard of him, Julius Caesar. Yes. Julius Caesar really liked Julius Caesar. And so <laughs> Julius Caesar decided that every single month we need to celebrate Julius Caesar. Yes. Do you know what that month is called? July. Fantastic. And then afterwards, there was another guy. Let me guess. Mm -hmm. Augustus? <laughs> You're on it. So what's amazing is these schmucks thousands of years ago decided that, you know, we should call an entire month after them. Uh -huh. And to this day... As we celebrate all these beautiful things in the month of August, we can thank some slightly crazy Roman emperors. Lister, I'm sure we can all remember our confirmation where you know the bishop there to bless you, to confirm you, and, and send you forth into the world blessed with the Holy Spirit. And I'm sure... Of course, you would remember those lovely cotton ball doves, which you so lovely decorated. But the bishop was definitely the highlight, not the cotton ball doves. But currently in the parish of Epping and Carlingford, we have some youths, some young and some slightly older, who are completing their confirmation. And also, 
undertaking the process that's required prior. So to talk about that process, we have our lovely Youth Minister of the Parish, Joanna Mack. Joanna, hello. Hello, Jack. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. Now, what can you tell us about this process? Yes. Um, so currently we've got some teenagers who are doing confirmation. And for me, it's super exciting because I remember doing confirmation when I was maybe nine years old. And I don't remember much besides those cotton ball dubs, which you mentioned. Um, but to be able to do confirmation with these teenagers and to be able to explain to them about baptism, to talk about their confirmation names, to learn about the symbols um, that are used at their confirmation. It's very exciting for me to be able to teach them, but also to remember why the confirmation and also the power of the Holy Spirit. So yeah, it's been very exciting and rewarding to do it with them. And I guess through doing confirmation with these teenagers and getting them to pick a confirmation name, so they normally pick a saint name, um, I've also been able to learn about different saints and also my own saint, Saint Joan of Arc. Pray tell, Joanna, pray tell. Yep. So I picked St. Joan of Arc as my confirmation saint because my name's Joanna uh, and St. Joan of Arc is quite similar. Um, and so it was very natural for me to go um, to that name. And now St. Joan of Arc, uh, she was from France um, and she was a, a very poor peasant girl growing up. Um, when she was quite young, she had visions of St. Michael the Archangel and also St. Margaret. And she decided to um, join the French military and she was someone who was like a warrior, like a soldier. Um, and she really wanted to fight for her people and to help her people. Unfortunately, when she was quite young, she was captured. Um, and, you know, she was tested and trialed. Um, and one of the very famous quotes for her was that she was asked if she knew she was in God's grace. Um, and this was a trick question. But she said, if I am not, then may God put me there. And if I am, may God so keep me there. And this was a bit of a trap because um, the church doctrine at the time was that no one could ever be certain of, of being in God's grace. If St. John of Arc did say, you know, yes, I am in God's grace, then she's kind of, you know, a bit of heresy there. But if she said no, then she's basically saying that she's guilty. So she ended up dying at quite a young age. But to me, she's very brave and very courageous. And I think that's what makes her a great saint. Um, and she even died um, defending her faith. Wow. Well, it sounds like even at such a young age, you were so wise to make such a profound mm -hmm. decision, Joanna. I think an excellent choice.